Now, Lord, we pray, anoint the remainder of this time. I pray for your help, for your strength, for your guidance, for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I thank you for all that you've done. It was enough. I thank you for all that you're doing. It's more than enough. I thank you for all that you will do, Lord. We are are undeserving of your blessing. I pray all these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Lift up your hands with me one more time in praise and worship. Would you do that? We praise you and adore you. We magnify you and uplift you. Come on, that's right with your whole heart. Yes, yes. Come on, yes. Right, somebody help me say it. want to tell you Lord I love you more than anything standing may be seated the mountain range of Moriah was mentioned first in the book of Genesis but in the book of the Chronicles Moriah is known as a singular mountain Aruna owned a portion of it. He had a threshing floor. It was said to be on Mount Moriah. The most critical point of all concerning that range was the command of God in which he told Abraham, saying, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. I'll read it again. Take your son, thine only son, the one you love, get into the land of Moriah, offer 
him there. The location of Moriah where Abraham took Isaac is often regarded as the same or similar place in which David made an altar of repentance. The Jews believe that this is also the place of Solomon's temple, though no one can be quite certain. The range, however, is close to the place that they might call the Hill of Skulls, Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. So named for its eerie resemblance of a human skull with sunken eyes and a gaping mouth. Abraham journeyed there long before Jesus was ever born. He went at God's command and brought the love of his life atop that mountain. Isaac knows that this is no ordinary trip. While servants and aides were with them most of the way, Abraham made them all stop at the foot of the mountain. And Abraham turned to his servants. He said, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. They had fire and wood and a knife, but something was missing. And it wasn't until they came to the place that Abraham revealed his intent to his son. It's a scene of unspeakable proportions. After decades of waiting for a boy, a child, Abraham has finally made his boast in Sarah's son, Isaac. All that he had ever wished for, all the love and hope was embodied in the smile of that boy. No one really knows how precious the moment until or unless they too have sought for a baby and then suddenly the unexpected happens and you look into the eyes of your dream. It's a reality that cannot be matched from conception to delivery. There are no treasures like that of a baby, and Abraham knew it. The present and the future, all wrapped up in vulnerability and helplessness. Abraham and Sarah were proud parents of a son born in their impossible age. And to watch him grow was a wonder all by itself. He has her smile. He has his gait. Her laugh, his hair. They are mesmerized by his arrival and for years their joy and pride persist. Isaac is the miracle child, the son of Sarah, the promise come true. But you see, God is seeking a covenant and he needs a man who can handle great gain and great loss. God's looking for a people with nothing in between him and them. What would you have said? What would you have done if you had heard the words of God to Abraham? Take your son, your only son, the one you love, the promise, and sacrifice him there. So when we read that Abraham trusted God, it didn't mean that Abraham had a feeling of trust. It wasn't an action of some benign proportion. It wasn't some flimsy or flippant thing. It was trusting God with the love of his life that no matter what happened on that mountain, God was faithful. We do not know. Maybe Abraham thought that God could raise or would raise Isaac back from the dead. We don't know. But Abraham trusted God with the sacrifice of the promise. Here are the opening words of Genesis 22. Some time later, God tested Abraham. Isaac was the promise. But promises won't keep God from testing his man. In fact, 
God is seen challenging his own provision just to prove that Abraham's heart is not divided. And more than that, God is setting forth an eternal requirement. It is a complexity lost on the carnal mind. God will require the blood of the innocent to pay for the sins of men. He will require a sacrifice to showcase his covenant. Watch closely. You'll see Abraham. Isaac is beside him. They are climbing past the thorns that form up the side of that barren mountain. Stones are in great supply. They are everywhere. Wood, however, is scarce, so they carry their own. They can make an altar out of stones, and they are set with the wood to burn. They have a little fire in their hand with some torch. But there is no sign of a lamb. Isaac knows something's missing. He's aware that the sacrifice is not there. He will ask as much, Father, we have the wood and the fire, but where is the sacrifice? Isaac asks the question. He is the answer. Remember the words that Abraham used. Though it should not be a side note for our churches today, I fear that we have misplaced his reply. Abraham said to his servants, we're going up to worship. Because to him and to them, worship was not confined to a 20-minute song set. It was not a time of clapping, rejoicing, and shouting. When they said worship, they meant sacrifice. And when Abraham laid his son Isaac on that bed of stones and raised his sharpened knife toward the heavens, his intent was worshiping God with his very best. He was offering his miracle son, the child of his impossible age, because he understood that God would only accept his best. Don't leave the mountain, ladies and gentlemen. If you could just see that range for the high place that it was. In time, another altar will be built there many, many years later. It's King David. He's weeping over the loss of life in Israel. He's made a mistake. He has bought the threshing floor. Though the owner wanted to give it to him, David said, and I quote, I cannot offer God something that costs me nothing. That, scripture, is the pivot point of my life. A sacrifice is made, and because of that sacrifice of repentance, the people are saved. A few more years will pass when David's son Solomon will lay the foundation for the first temple in that place. Atop David's altar of repentance in the region of Abraham's obedience will come the most magnificent building ever to be built. Gold and precious stones, two pillars with fire shooting light into the midnight sky. It's all there, nothing compared to Solomon's temple. It will conclude its construction after seven years of building without a single sound being made during construction. Reverence could not even begin to describe the aura surrounding that mountain in time however that mountainous range will be reduced kingdoms will come and go a thousand years will pass monarchs conquerors all of them will burn and rebuild time and again until finally rome will demand the attention of the inhabitants of jerusalem building its long aqueducts and stoned roads they will oppress nations far and wide. They will bind their opponents, stripping them of their own free will. Rome will allow indigenous worship only to control the commerce and trade. They will tax their captors and enslave those who resist. Rome will also highlight the suffering of the criminal in cruel measures. 
petty crimes might find swift judgment if they're lucky with a beheading. Thieves would not fare so well as their bodies were left hanging somewhere along the streets. But it was Rome's political opponents who were killed in the most painful and gruesome ways. Jesus was not a petty criminal to them. To those who crucified him, he was not treated as a member of the riffraff. He was not a slave or a thief or some incidental troublemaker. The Pharisees and the chief priests said that Jesus was a self-proclaimed king. Even though Pilate did not believe Jesus to be guilty of any crime, the Roman soldiers treated his execution in the same manner of his, as an insurrectionist, someone who would overthrow the Roman government. It could even be said that Jesus was killed on a political charge, spurred by an angry mob which were given permission by a fearful governor. They said that Jesus wanted to replace the Roman governance of Judea with his own kingdom. And in Rome, this rebellion needed to be suppressed in the most violent, forceful way possible. The Pharisees knew what they were doing. They goaded the crowd again and again. They challenged both Herod and Pilate. They assembled a band of insiders, taking the Lord's words out of context and superimposing their own malicious conclusions. Nothing cuts the human spirit like accusations and betrayal. Nothing. Both of which were levied against Jesus in those final days. The Jews could not wait. Jesus had to be killed and that right quickly. They wanted him dead, but in their deranged state, they also considered the coming Sabbath. How holy it must be kept. Think of it. The hypocrisy never rose higher than it did in those 72 hours before the Lord's crucifixion. And the catalog of crime never sank lower. The Pharisees wanted to commit murder, but still keep the Sabbath. The irony is not lost when Judas gives them back his 30 pieces of silver and casts the silver at their feet. They would not accept the silver, nor would they put it back into the treasury, for they said that it was blood money. And I read, the chief prayers, prayer, uh, priest took the silver pieces and said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. Who was it that was killed? All of their effort plotting and planning. They broke so many of their own laws for the execution of, of who? Who was it that needed to be crucified in the most brutal way? What had he done that offended them so? What damage had he done to the state or to the city or to the Sanhedrin or the temple? Who was it that suffered so much anguish and pain? His body wreathed in pain, struggled to breathe, hands spread out. The plunging of the fluids down into his lungs and then the exhale, the thirst of life dripping from his pores. Him? Him? The innocent? The man who never ever lied? He never said anything wrong, never a crass word, never cheated anybody, never took something that didn't belong to him, never offended anyone hatefully, never did one egregious thing. Him? And they sat down to watch him there. See it with me. Him there. It sobers the soul. He looks shameful. He's naked. And he's bloody. Him there disquiets the spirit. For of all the people who might have deserved some form of punishment or judgment or even retribution, he was the last of all of them. In fact, he deserved none of what happened to him. 
He caused no calamity. He made no mistake in speech or in delivery. In fact, he healed all of them. Maybe even some of them who now cried out for his execution, maybe they in fact had been healed by him. Him, the man who fed them food, delivered them from leprosy, cast out evil spirits from their children, who forgave them, who touched the blind, the deaf, the dumb, who made the lame to walk him. Who was it that he should die? Who was he that he should die? It wasn't until after his head sank deep into his bloodied chest that the attending centurion said and cried out, Surely this was the Son of God! The incarnate God hung there. The kinsman redeemer, that's him. The mediator between God and man. The great physician the Lamb of God, the miracle worker, the consolation of Israel, that's who. The Almighty, the Alpha and Omega wrapped in a garment of flesh. He willingly laid down his life for he said, no one can take my life. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. Him there. It's not right. Not when we consider ourselves. Him there as a reproach to the sinful nature that we are born into. Barabbas maybe, but not him. He was Emmanuel, perfect God with us. He was the deliverer of the Jews, the friend to the friendless. He opened all the blinded eyes. He helped them and healed them and touched them. And when nobody loved them, he loved them. They knew it and we read it. And there, of all the places, not there. There is a place of shame, humiliation and suffering. There is the ultimate torture reserved for the worst of mankind. There... There was where the passerby could see up close the worst of society. To frighten everyone not to commit any crime. He wasn't on a hill removed from them. He was in front of a hill. Within their sight. Within their grasp. Maybe a few inches from the ground. A few inches separated Jesus from the heavens and the earth. And when you figure out how far deity is from dust, then you'll find out how far God came to save you. There, there is not the place where you want to be. That's what happens to all those who oppose authority. The thieves and robbers and murderers and molesters, the whoremongers. And in that day, the insurrectionists, anywhere but there. A busy intersection where no one wanted to be. A decent man would not even wish it on his worst enemy. Prison. The dungeon. The guillotine at last. But not a used cross. The soldiers knew what to expect. They had done it before. And the Bible says they sat down to watch him there. Just know this. Paul was a learned man. He was educated. Maybe in our terms, he could be a college professor, a doctor, having multiple doctorates. He was a debater. He was a gifted speaker, teacher, preacher. He was very well read for his day. He knew the writings of poets, philosophers, learned men. He could have been anything. Anything he ever wanted to be, he could have been. He rose to power even in his younger age. But to summarize himself, this is what Paul said. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. He had both. 
declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He could have said anything or told anything. But he confined himself to just two parts. Jesus and him crucified. He could have exhorted in any way, but he restrained himself to only see two things. Jesus, the body of his life, and the body of his death. And here I am at the end of the text, taking note of one of our great losses in Christendom, perhaps even of Pentecostalism. We stopped looking at him there. We see a lot of things about Jesus. We talk a lot about him. We rehearse his blessings. We pray for his hand. His resurrection garnishes our attention at least once a year. Certainly all the things we can get from him. All the attributes of him. The love and forgiveness. The healing, the power. The help, the friend. But there is a noticeable decline in Christianity Few see him there. I'll read it again. And sitting down, they watched him there. Maybe if we sat down for a moment like the men who carried out the act, if we sat down for a period of time, we could see him. I think it would change our view of everything else. Greater love hath no man. That's in the sight of him there. Perfect love is found when we see him there. A real man purposed to carry my sins in that frame. I see him there. If we sat down and watched him there, our eyes would refocus. I think the world would look empty. It would look like the black hole that it is. The things of this world are facades that glitter for a season and then they're gone. But the moment... You lose sight of him there. That's the moment you rely upon yourself. Even doctrines and religions, functions and church services, none of them rise higher than him there because all of it rests on him there. When we lose the view of him there, we also lose many other things. We lose the priority of life, the purpose of the church, the reason for his blood. People start asking questions. What are they going to get out of it? What are they going to get out of the church? They're wondering where they fit in. What can they do? The problem is they lost the view of a dying Jesus. When we lose sight of him there, we start to lose sight of spiritual things and we start to see ourselves. We, me, you. We are the great inhibitor to the view of the cross of Calvary. Selfies did not begin with the conception of a cell phone or a camera. People have been taking selfies for thousands of years looking on themselves. Saul did it first when he said, or at least one of the first times when he said, I thought in myself that I would keep, I was thinking about myself. So I didn't obey you, God. 
Because I was considering myself. And I kept the best of the lambs and the best of the sheep. I kept Agag the king. Because I saw them as good. When we look at ourselves, we always lose sight of the cross of Calvary. Him there. It's an easy thing to lose. Other things cloud our vision. Life becomes about getting ahead. Really? Another dollar? Another paycheck? Another advancement? I'm not telling you not to work. I'm not saying you shouldn't make money. But that surely cannot be your pursuit in life. The church becomes about something else than Calvary and the cross, the blood. In fact, the blood itself becomes distasteful. It's a gory thought when we lose sight of him there. So maybe tonight we should just pause for a moment and see Jesus on a cross. He died for you. Specifically, for you. He died so that you didn't have to carry your own sin and so you could be free from shame and guilt. He died. When I consider the Lord and I consider his suffering, it makes me pause. It makes me consider why he suffered. He suffered because of my sin. It's a personal thing. Jesus, his cross, my sight of him to view him. It makes me consider the low state of my being. Makes me realize I'm not as good as anyone would ever propose. It makes me know I'm far less, and he's far greater, the cross. When you get a picture of him there, you'll think about people who have never seen him there. When you get a view of him there dying, you'll know. It's not good enough just to soak in every song and sermon. You'll try to get somebody to see him also. But in the modern times, We love entertainment and we love the entertainment and we can't afford to have a bloody cross enter our church. It's sobering, it's disquieting, it's discomforting. But I stand here tonight to say there's no sight and there's no preaching and there's no sound like him there. Your entire salvation in life depended on him Don't jump ahead to the resurrection. That's the problem also. We we jump ahead to Easter. It's the resurrection time. And sometimes I think we don't spend enough time at the hours leading up to his tragic death, his cruel torture, his bleeding side, the crown of thorns, his wounded spirit, the absent of anyone who would advocate for him. He was alone All we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. And God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Him there. Him there. The man Christ Jesus dying on a cruel cross that was not intended for him. It was not intended for anyone who was innocent. Him there has got to change your life and mine.
Maybe it's the years of Pentecost in me. Maybe it's the, the thousands of sermons I've heard and lessons I've heard. Maybe it's all the things that attend to our culture, the Pentecostal culture. It just makes me pause for a moment and I have to recognize and realize it is really all about Jesus. It's not about any individual. As the older I get, the more I abhor the personality-driven thought. It's not about a personality. It's about the person, Christ Jesus. It's not about me. It's about the Lord. And the Greeks must have known something was up. They didn't go to everybody. They went to Philip because Philip's name has a Greek origin. And the Greeks went there. There's a lot of people. They didn't know, they didn't know the image. They knew the person they were looking for. And they said to Philip, sir, we would see Jesus. And that is what we've got to get to. We want to see Jesus when we walk into this place. I am grateful. I'm not putting down anyone who leads us in worship because I really feel that the people who are leading us in worship are leading us toward Jesus Christ. They're not here to perform. None of us are here to perform. We're not here just to entertain anyone. But we've got to see Jesus. If you could see Jesus, everything will change. You'll put aside your petty pursuits you see Jesus if you see Jesus dying for your sin you'll change your tone your your attitude your thought your life if you see Jesus everything begins to change everything's resurrected everything starts to look different in fact all the things in the world it it looks disgusting you don't you don't have any desire for it (laughs) but if you never see him there you're never going to realize what he went through to save you See, this is the other problem in our culture. We don't have any animal sacrifices. (laughs) We're living in a modern day. Maybe you might see a a deer that got hit on the road and you kind of drive by slow. An animal, unfortunate event, but blood was required and they all knew about blood and we don't even really understand the culture of blood. But they understood blood, and we've got to get it back in our mind. It's not a gory thing. It's not something to abhor. But the blood of Jesus paid for your sin. And the only way you have access to God is through the blood of a spotless lamb. He was Jesus of Nazareth. He was Emmanuel God with us. He was the chosen one in the consolation. (laughs) And when I stand here preparing to receive communion and to deliver it to you. I do so with the thought of a crucified Christ. With the determination to know nothing more than Jesus Christ and him crucified. I pray tonight we're ending our year. I know the calendar doesn't say so. But we're ending our year tonight in this house. We end our year with remembering the Lord's death, his suffering, his body, and his blood. If you never learn anything about the church, know this. We're after Jesus every day. We want to please the Lord every day. I need thee, oh, I need thee. 
every hour I need Thee. Bless me now, my Savior. I come to Thee. At the cross, at the cross, somebody help me. Where I first saw the light and the burdens of my rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. Now I'm Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. It washes away. Yes, yes, yes. Stand with me and lift up your hands to the Lord right now and see him there. I thank you, Lord, for it. I thank you, Lord, for it.